Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be gathered together like this as your children, your adopted ones, your heirs with Christ. We thank you for making us born again, causing us to be born again, united with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, help us never be familiar with this unbelievable thing that really is hard for us to comprehend. But we ask that you help us embrace it by faith and enjoy our lives by faith and live this way to bring you glory. All for your precious Son and what he did for us. Father, please bless this message. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help us understand what you want us to know this evening. Help us to comprehend supernatural things. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, this is our last uh, special here from the India Mission Lessons. And tonight is a little bit of a combination of a lesson, uh, the deity and love of Christ. So um, these two topics were often uh, frequently shared in India at different events we're doing. Uh, so this is, again, one of the things that were really high in the list that the Holy Spirit kept bringing forward, even though there were plenty of other lessons we could have shared. In fact, the Spirit gave Michael the opportunity to share on this trip uh, many times, actually, about the deity of Christ. So the notes I'm going to share with you now are mostly from him, uh, mostly his uh, scriptures and, and the way he very plainly presented it to everybody out there, which they really enjoyed, by the way, because as you're going to see tonight, it's scripture after scripture after scripture. There's not going to be much talking. It speaks for itself. And uh, let, let the scripture just kind of take over and convict you. Uh, so anyone, anyone listening tonight with an open mind, maybe not here physically, but uh, it's hard to deny the scriptures we're going to know unless you really, uh, someone's being arrogant. So this was um, a good interlude in the, on the India trip because many times we had about three hours with the students at the Bible schools. So um, I would teach for an hour, Michael would teach on the deity of Christ, and then I'd teach on something else. For example, the love of Christ, which we're going to end with tonight. Okay, so first of all, um, let me say this, and this is, this is for everybody anywhere, really, in the world. The deity of Christ is an important topic, for example, for the believers in India to master. Because many Hindus will say they believe in Jesus. I've met Indian people in America over the years. And, you know, little conversation. And I've asked them, before I even knew better, do you believe in, in Jesus? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's my bud. You know, they don't say those words, but you know what I mean. That's the attitude. So now I'm assuming they're saved. But they believe in Jesus as another of many gods. They don't put him down. They, they think he's honorable. They just don't realize he's Lord and God in the flesh. And that makes all the difference in the world in salvation. And for us in America or wherever you live, there are always religions or cults that believe in Jesus as something else. You won't find any 
religions or cults that put Jesus down. Will you? I, off the top of my head, I can't think of one. He's always at least a good guy, right? Or a prophet or honorable or a good man or something. So that's kind of, again, the deception of Satan is let's just lump him in all together. We're not going to put him down. He was a very good man. Look at all the people he healed. But don't give him the credit for who he is, which is a requirement on salvation. Because otherwise you believe in another Jesus, according to the scriptures. So on the board, deity is part of who Christ is. But Satan would love people to believe in a counterfeit Jesus who is less than God himself, as seen in many religions today, such as the Hindus, such as the Muslims, who believe he was a prophet, but that's it. Jehovah's Witnesses believe he's a God, a smaller God, but they don't give him credit for the fact that God himself came to save his people. So again, we see this in Matthew 16, 13 through 17, and in 2 Corinthians 11, 4 is where it talks about believing in another Jesus and another gospel. Again, deity is part of who Christ is, but Satan would love people to believe in a counterfeit Jesus who is less than God himself, as seen in many religions today. So turn to Matthew 16, 13 to begin. We're going to turn to a lot of scriptures tonight, so get your fingers loose. Crack your knuckles if you need to, whatever you got to do, because we're going to be moving, and we're going to try to keep it moving as well, so we can get through uh, all these wonderful scriptures. Matthew 16, 13. So if you don't think it matters what people believe of Jesus, that just that they believe in him, well, look what Jesus himself asked, a very important question. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there's just another clue of how important it is to realize who Jesus is, not just what he did for us. So I'm going to share with you again a bunch of scriptures, as Michael did for the students in India, and uh, just enjoy the simplicity and purity of this uh, practice. The Bible is crystal clear about Jesus Christ, and that he is God who eternally existed. He left heaven and became a man and died on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John 2.2. And on the board, the child that was promised in the Old Testament and eventually born for us was none other than the Creator himself, equal to God the Father in heaven. And we're going to see a lot of uh, these truths about the deity of Christ by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And it's, it's a wonderful way to do it, uh, as well as very important keeping these Scriptures in context. So turn to Isaiah 7.14 first. Even the most basic Bible student, I don't care if you're a brand new believer, you should know 
some basic scriptures like this that prove the deity of Christ. And these are two fabulous scriptures to compare to one another. Again, on the board, the child that was promised in the Old Testament and eventually born for us was none other than the Creator Himself, equal to God the Father in heaven. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, if you don't know, means God with us. Not a God with us, not a prophet or an angel with us. It means God with us. So again, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and this child is God with us. Now that alone stands on its own merits, but turn to Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah goes on with more clues about how to recognize the Messiah for all your Jewish friends. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Any questions? And we could just close class right there unless someone's really arrogant and they want to be stubborn and don't want to, don't want to accept what's plainly stated. And by the way, with Jehovah's Witnesses, they go to this verse, Isaiah 9, 6, and they say, see, see, Jesus is just a mighty God. He's not almighty God. But don't let that throw you because there's plenty of scriptures that say Jehovah is mighty and there's plenty of scriptures that say Jesus is almighty. So don't let this one scripture, if they throw that at you, uh, get you fooled. But very clear evidence of who the child is, God himself with us. Let's compare two more verses that you also should know very well, even if you're a new believer. Go to John 1, 1. John 1, 1. <clears throat> and you might walk a new believer through this one day, too. You might have someone that's kind of open, whether you're not sure if they're saved or not, that they're, they're willing to listen. And you, these are the things, if you show them with their own eyes, and they see them with their own eyes, it can really change their their heart, because they've got to come to their own conclusion on it, right? We can't be convincing people, but let's show them. So John 1.1, 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is clearly telling us about God, our Creator, being the Word of God, one and the same, right? The Word was God. Okay, I can accept that. The Word was God. What else does it say about the Word? In John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is God, or was God. The Word became flesh. Obviously, Jesus Christ has flesh, but God the Father does not. So you have to conclude Jesus Christ is who this is talking about, therefore equal to God in verse 1. And turn to Revelation 19.13. Revelation 19.13. One of Jesus' titles is also the Word of God. talking about his uh, second coming. 
Revelation 19:13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So, let it speak for itself. The humble will see this. On the board, Jesus Christ also called God his Father, making himself equal with God. John 5.18, 8.19, and 14.7. Jesus Christ called God his Father, making himself equal with God. How do we know that? Well, let's see what it says. Go to John 5.18. John 5.18. Is this just an assumption? When Jesus called God his Father, I mean, is it appropriate to say that that's a claim to deity? Look at John 5.18. For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's what Holy Scripture says about calling God your own Father. That's what the Jews believed he was claiming when he said, My Father in heaven. He was making himself equal with God. Uh, John 8:19 just take a quick look at John 8:19 Jesus says if you knew me you would know my father and there's just another glimpse into the oneness between them if you knew me you would know my father and turn to John 14 verse 6 Here Jesus says, you have known the Father and you've even seen the Father. Talking about himself. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Doesn't get any more of a uh, direct claim to oneness with the Father. On the board, another point that came up regarding the deity of Christ is that Jesus refers to himself as the great I Am from the Old Testament as in John 8:58. Uh, you can turn to John 8:58. And this is why they tried to stone him to death again. They didn't try to stone, you know, everybody to death, you know. There were certain reasons, and this was a big one. Whenever you claim to be equal with God, it's considered blasphemy. So again, Jesus refers to himself as the great I am from the Old Testament. John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to kill him. Because that phrase, I am, is the title that Jesus quoted from Moses, Exodus three fourteen, When God told Moses, that's who his, what his name was, I am. I am who I am. So this was Jesus clearly claiming to be equal with God.
on the board. Jesus says he gives eternal life. But only God Almighty can give eternal life. How can a creature give eternal life if he's only a creature? Only the Creator obviously can do that. Uh, go to John 10.27. Jesus says he can give eternal life. Quite a blasphemous claim if you were a Jew in the day. John 10.27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then we see the Jews pick up stones to kill him because they, they're claiming he made himself out to be God. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from, my, from the Father, for which, of these, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. One of those ways you make yourself out to be God is to claim to be able to give eternal life to people. On the board, the Jews had a law. If anyone claimed... They were God. They were to be killed. John 19.7, Mark 14.64, just a couple examples. Uh, you can turn to John 19.7. So their law wasn't against someone who made themselves out to be a prophet or, you know, even a small God. The title Son of God was a title for God, and the Jews knew that, and that's why they wanted to kill him. So, you know, sometimes people will say, I had someone say it to me the other day when I was talking about Jesus being God in the flesh, and they say, but wasn't he the son of God? Like, yeah, he was also, right? But that very title actually is a title for God. There's an equality, assumed equality there. And the Jews knew that, and that's why they wanted to kill, kill him for claiming to be the son of God. Look at John 19.7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So it was clear to them that Jesus claimed to be God, otherwise there would be no grounds for killing him. Let's compare John 19.7 to Mark 14.61. Mark 14.61. But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. There it is again. I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. 
So there we see the blasphemy, the claim to be equal with God that Jesus himself made very clearly. On the board, another uh, point or uh, perspective, if you will, into the deity of Christ. The child is said to be God with us. We've already seen that in Isaiah. And Holy Scripture says God shed his own blood and was pierced. It doesn't even say the son shed his own blood and was pierced. It says God shed his own blood and was pierced. Matthew 1, 23, Acts 20, 28, Zechariah 12, 10, and Psalm 22, 16. Uh, let's go to Matthew 1, 23 quickly. Matthew 1, 23. I've got a lot of great scriptures to go through. We might not get through them all. We'll see. And if any of you want a copy of these notes, you can let me know and for your own studies, etc. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So that's the first thing there about this child. And this child apparently is God, according to Acts 20, 28 as well. Go to Acts 20, 28. So the child is God with us. And then later on it says God purchased the church with his own blood. Obviously this has to be Jesus' blood because God the Father doesn't have blood. God is spirit remember Acts 20 28 be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood it's a great passage Jesus isn't even mentioned there Zechariah chapter 12 go to Zechariah 12 1 Zechariah 12, 1, near the end of the Old Testament. Now, Zechariah tells us that God himself was pierced. And this is where context is big, okay? You might even get, if you sit down with someone, maybe Jehovah's Witness, and they say, but, you know, this verse is actually talking about God the Father, or vice versa, right? They'll, they'll make a claim that fits their theology. So context is very important. So Zechariah 12.1, notice, it's the Lord who stretches out the heavens who is speaking. You see that? In verse 1, Zechariah 12.1, the Lord who stretches out the heavens. That's the one who's speaking in this chapter. And look what the Lord goes on to say in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is the Lord speaking. Jehovah. Old Testament. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again, don't even try to understand the oneness of the Trinity. Of the Father and the Son even. We can't comprehend it, but the Bible says they're one. The Bible says they're equal. And you see it here in this language, kind of going back and forth. But again, our point is in verse 10, they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and that is the Lord speaking. 
And we can compare that with another prophecy, um, Psalm 22, 16. Let's go there real quick. Psalm 22, 16. guys are slow. What the heck? <laughs> Just teasing. Jeez. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have, has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's another prophecy, another proof. On the board, Jesus is also said to be the exact image of God and the fullness of deity. The exact image of God in the fullness of deity. There's more than one scriptures that, that use these terms, but we're going to look at Colossians. Uh, go to Colossians 1, verse 13. Jesus is said to be the exact image of God in the fullness of deity. Colossians 1, 15 through 19, and Colossians 2, verse 9. And it also says here in Colossians 1 that he created all things. Colossians 1.13 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He, still talking about his beloved son in verse 13, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, of, all the fullness to dwell in him. And then look at Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. So it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And in Colossians 2.9, for in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It doesn't get much clearer than that. So here again we see God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. On the board, let's keep going. There's so many scriptures actually that prove the deity of Christ. God is said to be the Savior of all men. God is said to be the Savior of all men. For example, Isaiah 43, 10-11 and 1 Timothy 4:10. But Jesus is clearly given the same title of Savior. In Titus 2, 13, 1 John 5, 20, and 2 Peter 1, 1, just as examples. So, for example, in Isaiah 43, it says God is the only Savior. We're not going to go there right now. Go to 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. So first of all, we're seeing that God, God himself is the Savior of all men. It says that in Isaiah 43 and in 1 Timothy 4, 10. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 
Yet, Jesus is clearly given the same title of Savior. Uh, turn forward a couple books to Titus, right after Timothy, Titus 2.13. So in Timothy, we just saw the living God is the Savior of all men. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And go to 1 John 5.20. 1 John 5.20. Again, the point on the board is that God is said to be the Savior of all men, but Jesus is clearly given the same title throughout Scripture. 1 John 5.20. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And on the board, in 2 Peter 1.1, it says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, once again. One more scripture on this to look at. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.1. 1 Corinthians 10.1. When Moses and the Jews followed God around in the desert in the Old Testament. This passage actually says they were following Christ. Therefore, God equals Christ. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.1 For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Apparently it wasn't God the Father, but it was God, right? Clearly it was God. Apparently it was God the Son. Another proof for the deity of Christ on the board. Only God can forgive sins and no one else. But, Jesus boldly does so. Matthew 9, 2 and 3, and Mark 2, 5 through 7. In uh, Matthew 9 here, Jesus forgives sins. You can turn to Matthew 9, 2. Jesus forgives sins, and they accuse him of blasphemy because he forgave sins. So obviously there's a claim to be the only one who's allowed to forgive sins, God. They wanted to kill him again. I wonder how many times, maybe we'll never know, how they, tried, they picked up stones to try to, who knows, some maybe aren't recorded in Scripture. Matthew 9, 2 and 3. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes sent, said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. He didn't claim to be God directly, did he? But he, he forgave this man's sins, and that's why they called him a blasphemer. It's even clearer in Mark 2, verse 5. Go to Mark 2, verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, 
said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Amen? Pretty clear. Next point for the deity of Christ on the board. Only God receives worship and glory. Yet, Jesus accepted worship and claimed God's glory. A lot of scriptures here. Mark 5, 6 and 11, 9 through 10. Luke 5, 8. Luke 17, 15 through 18. John 5, 23. 9, 38. 20, 28. Hebrews 1, 6. Revelation 5, 8 through 14. And Revelation 22, 8 through 9. Only God receives worship and glory. That's what's appropriate. Yet Jesus accepted worship and claimed God's glory. Every time in Scripture... A human being worships an angel. The angel rebukes him and says, don't worship me. Worship God alone. We had that happen to us in India. We're walking down the slums and passing out tracks and praying for people. And a couple of people got down on the ground and tried to touch our feet. And we jumped back We're like, whoa, you, you got the wrong impression here, right? And then you, 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 know, you tell them only Jesus is worthy of worship because he's God. No one else is worthy of worship, worship except God himself. Revelation 22, 8 through 9. Let's see an example of that first. Revelation 22, 8. <clears throat> Try telling someone not to bow down to you when they don't speak your language, too. It's a lot of fun. Translator, come on over here, quick. <laughs> it's quite a dynamic. But God provides. Revelation 22.8 I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your, uh, of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. In other words, worship God only. Worship God. You don't worship. I'm just a creature like you, said the angel. Yet, if Jesus were lesser than God in some way, he would have rebuked people who fell down at his feet. But Jesus never did that. He accepted their worship. So, for example, look at Luke 5, 8. Go to Luke 5, verse 8. This should give you plenty of ammunition to either sit down with someone or, depending on how you're in touch with them, at least share some of these scriptures and tell them to look them up for themselves and make their own decision. Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Notice he calls him Lord also. But he fell down at Jesus' feet, and Jesus did not rebuke him in this passage. Go to John 5, 23. John 5, 23. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. 
Now you've got to understand, God does not share His glory or honor with anybody. Right? Even back to the commandments, love the Lord your God and serve Him only. God doesn't share His glory with anybody. So Jesus must be God if the Son is to be honored the same as the Father. In John 5, 23. Look at uh, John 9, 38. John 9, 38. We're not going to be able to cover all the scriptures on the board, so if you want to write them down and look them up later, you know, just to edify your own soul, please jot them down. But John 9, 38, he, this was the blind man that was healed, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus did not rebuke him in this passage. Look at John 20, verse 28. John 20, 28. If Jesus was only an angel, he would have did what the angel in Revelation did to John, saying, don't worship, don't do that, don't worship me, worship God only. But apparently, Jesus knew who he was. John 20, 28, Thomas answered and said to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Very clear, very bold, very direct, and Jesus did not rebuke him in this passage. Go to Hebrews 1. Verse 6, Hebrews 1, 6. Isn't this fun? I hope it's fun. I love it. Uh, Hebrews 1, 6. So there's a couple things in this passage. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world... He says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, this, is, this isn't God the Father, right? It says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, talking about firstborn of all creation, right? Jesus is the, the, at the top uh, as the God-man. But he says, of the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Any questions? Of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then God continues talking about the Son in verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. He's talking about the sun in context. As we saw in Colossians 1, he created the heavens and the earths. And the earth. And then look at uh, Hebrews 3, verse 1. Hebrews 3, verse 1. This is an interesting passage the Spirit added as I was reviewing all the notes. Hebrews 3.1 Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy 
of more glory than Moses. Okay, how much more glory than Moses? By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. That's a lot, right? <laughs> Who gets the credit, the builder or the house? Well, look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So Jesus is called the builder of the house, and God is the builder of all things. On the board, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the Almighty, was dead and became alive again. How do you explain that, Jehovah's Witnesses? How do you explain that? Revelation 1, 7 and 8 and 17 through 18. Go to Revelation 1, 7. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 7. Again, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Almighty was dead and became alive again. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So clearly it's, talk, it's talking about God, right? Go, go to verse 17. Revelation 1, 17. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So again, on the board, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Almighty, was dead and became alive again. Has to be Jesus, of course. To realize that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh, makes you think about the tremendous love that motivated him to become human and go to a horrible cross on purpose for us. Two scriptures come to mind. Many of you know Philippians 2. Actually, why don't we just turn there? Philippians 2, verse 5. How much love does someone have to have to do this willingly? For enemies, nonetheless. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He existed in the form of God. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the board, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We're talking about heaven and earth, right? We're talking about eternal things and earthly things. He left heaven where he was rich beyond anybody's imagination, and he became poor. He became limited in human form and then went to the cross on top of it so that we could become rich by believing in him. Why would God, who had it all in heaven, 
disturb that. Disturb his own perfect peace and love and enjoyment. Why would God, who had it all in heaven, give that all up for creatures that turned on him? How, how do we explain that? This is the eternal mystery of God's love. And this brings us to our closing lesson in India, which is basically who can explain the love of Christ? We could think about it the rest of our lives and not fully grasp it. What man has the ability to fully comprehend the love of Christ? How do we explain a love that was willing to leave heaven and limit himself in such a dramatic way and suffer horribly, knowing he was going to suffer horribly for the sake of sinners? How do we explain a love that was willing to be ridiculed and even persecuted, even though he was pure and innocent and right and true and everything? We can't explain it, at least not in human understanding. And as Holy Scripture says, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Maybe that's why it says this, because you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the book knowledge in the world. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is another hint that this is a spiritual venture we're on. This is a supernatural, spiritual relationship with God. And only those that are humble and turn to Him and seek Him are going to be shown what the love of Christ is all about before they die, at least to some degree. Because He only reveals Himself to those who want to know Him. His love goes way beyond knowing the facts and knowing what he did. It's a supernatural, spiritual understanding that can only be granted by the Lord himself to an individual, to a believer. Go to John 14, 21. John 14, 21. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's only going to be comprehended by those that are shown it by the Lord himself. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. This isn't about book knowledge. This is about the one that loves God and obeys his commands, which reveals his love for God. So then Jesus is going to reveal himself or disclose himself to him. Only the Lord can help us see what his love is really like. And when we grow up in his love, when we humbly seek to understand the love of Christ, the more and more we will see and be motivated from a different place in life. On the board... God wants our motivation in all that we do to be the love of Christ. But if it's going to be our motivation, we've got to know it first, right? 2 Corinthians 5.14, part A, for the love of Christ controls us. That's what God wants for all of us, more and more. We never arrive, but more and more. God wants our motivation in all that we do to be the love of Christ. 
as a believer, the love of Christ should be our very motivation for getting up in the morning. It's not always true, right? <laughs> but that's where he wants us to be. The love of Christ should be our very motivation for waking up in the morning. Realizing again when you wake up in the morning that he did this for me. And he loved me knowing all my sins. And he went to the cross knowing all my sins. He left heaven for me knowing all my sins. Again, surpasses knowledge. But the love of Christ should be our very motivation for getting up in the morning. That should be what uh, wows us every day. We should never be familiar with it. We get familiar with it. I'm not talking down to anybody. Trust me. I have my own struggles with this. But more and more, this is where God wants us to be. That's what gets us up in the morning, His love. God desires we be controlled and persuaded by Christ's love each and every day. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort, and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. On the board, the love of Christ is the supreme motivation in life, and his love in us can overcome all things. Love's the power source, everybody. <laughs> I mean, I know you probably get that, but like love's kind of behind all the divinely good power that we could live in or execute. You think of 1 Corinthians 13, love is. Uh, I was telling the guys in the men's Bible study last night that the Spirit's hit me with this lately. Love is patient. When we lack patience, we don't lack patience, we lack love. If we had more love, we'd have patience. We'd have eternal patience with people if we had God's love. Right? That's the source of all these things. Love is patient, love is kind. If you're not kind enough to somebody, it's not because you lack kindness, you lack love. We all lack love, right? So again, on the board, the love of Christ is the supreme motivation in life, and His love in us can overcome all things, literally all things, even things you think you could never overcome. If you understand the love of Christ and you have that at that, at that moment in your life, whenever that your tests come, you can overcome all things. So says Scripture, Romans 8, 28-39, Philippians 4, 13. In Romans 8, 35, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It goes on to say, no one. So knowing this, if nothing can separate us from Christ's love, if you really know that in your heart, you believe that, truth, that can help you get through anything in this life including what some of our, our members are going through right now in the health field, right? Kathy, Frank, Jenny, they're going through like Job-type stuff. Think about them a lot. But you know what? If they turn to God and rely on His love, 
they're going to be okay. They're going to get through it, even with peace. Go to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We literally can conquer all things because of him who loved us. What does that take? Faith. If you don't have enough faith, ask for more faith. And maybe he'll give you more love. Or maybe he'll show you more of his love. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. All these horrible things Paul mentions in verse 35 and 36. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities... No things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing, including Satan, that's my own word, sorry, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And notice verse 39. The love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was and is love incarnate. In a person, God in the flesh. We've already seen that tonight. He was love. God is love. God in the flesh equals love in the flesh. Perfect love. He not only lived out God's love on our behalf, but he was and is. So who can explain the love of Christ, right? Again on the board, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Just something to ponder. Try to fathom this. If you were in heaven, would you leave heaven to save somebody, even someone you loved? I wouldn't. Second Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And where does grace come from? Isn't grace an expression of love? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God's love at the core is sacrificial. There's never been a greater sacrifice in the universe. 
And it was all empowered by the love of God. And that's the love that God desires that we are rooted and grounded in. He's like, if you learn to be rooted and grounded in my love, if, if you obey my commands and you love me and I disclose my love to you and I show you what it really is all about, and you're rooted and grounded like that, you will overcome all things. So let's close with Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. There's that comprehension, right? If you're rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. All we really can do is ask God for more faith, Continue to seek Him with an honest heart. And He promises to reward those that seek Him. And maybe, just maybe, He's going to show you more and more of His love, which is, again, where all the power comes from. To do all the things He wants us to do, even without difficulty. Again, Romans eight thirty-seven. right? We over, overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Amen? Let's bow heads. Father, we thank you so much. Your word is so awesome, and we thank you for all the scriptures and how you perfectly blend different truths together, including the deity of your precious Son and also his love. Love became a man. Something we can't fully fathom, Father, but we ask that you show us more and more of this truth. Father, we ask also that you help us be prepared in these scriptures and share these truths and evidences with those out there that are lost and dying and don't know it. We ask for your strength and your wisdom as we go forward and help us rely more on your faith and hope and love that you can give us. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.